But open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. If you will, please, 1 Samuel chapter 30. Glad my wife, Chrissy, could be with me on this trip. She was really excited when she heard there were earthquakes. She only got to be in one of them before in her life, and that was in Greece, and had so much fun. She thought, oh, good, we'll get to do this all over again. So thank you for being here. Stand with me if you don't mind. And actually, uh, 1 Samuel 27, let's go there. We'll get to chapter 30 in a little bit. 1 Samuel chapter 27 and verse 1, And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines, and Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. And David arose, and he passed over with the 600 men that were with him, unto Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, even David and his two wives. When I pastored the First Baptist Church of Richwood would read that phrase, two wives, I would always say that's, and our members would say one too many. <laughs> Let's try that, all right? David passed over the 600 men that were with him. David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and even David with his two wives, that's one too many. Ahanoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he sought no more again for him. And David said unto Achish, If I have not found grace in thine eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country, that I may dwell there. For why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with thee? Then Achish gave him Ziklag that day, wherefore Ziklag pertaineth unto the kings of Judah unto this day. And the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. And David and his men went up and invaded the Geshurites and the Gezerites and the Amalekites. For those nations were of old, the inhabitants of the land, as thou goest to Shur, even unto the land of Egypt. And David smote the land and left neither man nor woman alive and took away the sheep and the oxen and the asses and the camels and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. And Achish said, Whither have you made a road today? And David said, Against the south of Judah. It's not where he went. He went and invaded the Geshurites, the Gezerites, the Amalekites. But he said, I want it against Judah, and against the south of the Jeremielites, and against the south of the Kenites. All those are Israeli people, God's people. That's where he said he went. That's not where he went. And David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, lest they should, saying, lest they should tell on us. Saying, so did David, and so will be his manner all the while he dwelleth in the country of the Philistines. And Achish believed David, saying he hath made his people Israel utterly to abhor him. Therefore, he shall be my servant forever. Father, I pray that you'd guide me and direct me by your spirit to say that which would please you. I do not know the needs and the burdens of this great crowd of people that have gathered on this 4th of July Sunday. But you do. 
Lord, if I knew their needs, I couldn't address them, but you can empower me and direct me by your spirit so that everything you want to be accomplished will be in our hearts. I pray you do that. Do bind the devil and his demons. Keep them from interfering with us receiving the seed of your word. Bless the preaching. Bless the invitation. Draw us to yourself. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name for all that you do. Amen. Amen. may be seated. The Bible is an amazing book. It's full of wisdom and insight and help to the careful reader. And here's a phenomenal story on the heels of David's gracious and godly refusal to take the life of Saul. He could have killed Saul in the previous chapters, had two opportunities to do that, and he didn't do it. He said, I will not stretch my, forth hand, my hand forth on God's anointed. And we begin the story noticing David's despair. I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. Saul's going to kill me. It's over. There is nothing better for me than that I should join up with the Philistines. And that way Saul will despair to ever catch me in any coast of Israel. Notice that the cause of his despair was that he relied on human reasoning. Look at verse 1. And David said, read me the next three words if you have it there. In his heart. Well, I just feel, well, I just think, you know, in my heart, I really believe. Well, so what? <laughs> Did you know it really doesn't matter what you think in your heart or believe in your mind? It really does matter what God said in his word. You see, David is in despair. The cause is not only that he has relied on human reasoning, but he is rejecting God's promise. He said, I'm going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. No, you're not, David. They've anointed you to be king. Samuel has come down, the man of God, and said, you're the next king over the nation of Israel. And they never put a dead man on the throne. It's all huff and puff all he wants to. He's not going to take David's life. God has other plans. I love the story Somebody may have referenced it at the leadership conference, but years ago, it was pointed out to me, Peter's in jail. And uh, he's going to be beheaded the next morning. And you know what he does? He stays up writing notes to all of his family. No, he goes to sleep. You say, why would Peter go to sleep? Now, I don't know for sure that it happened like this, but I can imagine it. Uh, they say, Peter, you need anything. You know, they're going to behead you tomorrow. Anything you can do for him? Peter says, yeah, bring me a mirror. A mirror? Yeah. They bring him a little piece of polished metal. He holds it up and looks. No more crow's feet at the corner of his eyes. No more wrinkles in his brow. Hadn't lost any more hair. And he says, no, I'll be fine. Hands the mirror back, lies down, goes to sleep, doesn't wake up until the angel comes. You say, why do you think that could have happened? Because Jesus said, Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself and went where you wanted to go. But when you're old, they're going to take you where you wouldn't go. And I think Peter said, hey, Herod can make all the plans he wants to. He can get the henchmen ready. He can have the chopping block ready. He can have the axe sharpened. But Jesus said, I'm going to live to be an old man. Amen. See, your despair never comes because you rely on the word of God. It often comes because you listen to your own heart. But think not only about the cause of his despair, think about the consequence of his despair. He winds up allied with the enemy. 
There's nothing better for me but that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines, the avowed and perpetual enemies of the people of God. The Philistines, remember Goliath? That was a Philistine. Remember, he said, David, you said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Remember that? That wasn't that long ago, David. You've been running a few years now, but it wasn't that long ago you trusted in God and God gave you victory over a giant and now you're hooking up with the same people that were the enemies of God. David, why in the world would you do that? Well, he said, it's the best thing I can do. I don't have any better choices. There's nothing better for me. I hope no matter how bad things get in your life, you never yoke up with the enemies of God. But there's another consequence of this despair. He allied with the enemy and he achieved success. Did you know David's plan worked? Look at the Bible. The Bible says that I'm going to look yoke up with the Philistines. Verse one, Saul shall despair of me to seek me anymore in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. That's what he said he was going to do. And verse four, it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath and he sought no more again for him. Great plan, David, a man, marvelous idea. Hook up with the Philistines and Saul won't find you. And he didn't. Saul won't even seek for you anymore. Do you understand that the fact that something seems to work does not prove it's right? You understand that? Uh, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. You've smitten it one time. Now this time I want you to speak to it and it'll bring forth water. And Moses stands up, meekest man in all the world, sick and tired of a million, 200,000 complaining adult Jews. And he says, here now ye rebels, shall I fetch you water out of this rock? And he takes his rod and he smites the rock. And it worked. Water came forth out of the rock. It was perfectly valid, must have been, because after all, uh, he was trying to get water and he hit the rock and he got water. Must have been a good plan. But Moses could not have known as the rock is an example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was once crucified for our transgressions. And then he destroyed that type and that analogy and and actually lined up with some false religions and some of the things that they do today. But it worked. Hey, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take Joseph. We'll get rid of him. We'll tell our daddy some evil beast half devoured him. And it worked. And they got rid of him. They had years without that troublesome little brother and his nonsensical dreams of superiority. Hey, I'm sick and tired of daddy being in charge. I want to be in charge. And I'm going to steal the hearts of the men of the nation of Israel. And I'm going to declare myself king. And it worked. David ran away. And Absalom sat on the throne of the nation of Israel. Ah, don't worry about it, Bathsheba. I bring your husband home and everybody think the baby's his. Well, that didn't work because Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, stayed in the king's gate and said, I'm not going to go enjoy the comforts of my home and the fellowship of my family while my brother in, in arms and my, my general Joab are out fighting in the open field and living in tents. Oh, David said, that's all right, I'll get him drunk. But Uriah had more characters sober than, or drunk than David did sober. 
Well, he said, don't worry about that. And he took a little message and he rolled it up and put a seal on it and he placed it in the hand of Uriah and he said, you take this to Joab. Uriah did not know it, but in that message was his own death warrant. He said, put Uriah at the hottest part of the battle when everything gets really fierce, then everybody else retire and leave him there. David knew two things. He knew Uriah would not look at the message that was sealed with the king's seal. He knew the Uriah, though everybody else left, if the retreat had not been blown, Uriah would stay and fight. And you know what? Uriah died and David married Beth. Sheba and everything looked pretty good for a while. But God said, uh, Moses, you're not going into the promised land. Spent 40 years leading the children of Israel there, but you didn't obey me and you didn't honor me and you're not going to the promised land. And 22 years later, the children of Israel Jacob's uh, 10 sons, all but Joseph and Benjamin, go to Egypt to get food. And the man is quite, kind of interested in them. And he asks about their family. And when they come back the second time, he reveals himself. He says, I am Joseph. Oops. Yeah, the one you sold into slavery. The one you told your father had been killed by a wild beast. Absalom sat on the throne for a little while, but he ended up with his head caught in the branches of an oak tree and darts in his heart and dead. And there came the day that Nathan came down to David and told him the story about the rich man who had lots of lambs, but he didn't want to use one to feed a traveler who came by. And so he stole the pet lamb from his neighbor, the lamb that was like a member of the family and ate at the table with him. And David said, I'll tell you whoever that ought to die. Well, I can't kill him under the law, but he'll pay back fourfold. That's what it do. And Nathan pointed his finger right into the face of David and said, thou art the man. Don't ever think that because something works, it makes it right. What's right is right because it's consistent with the truths and the principles of this book. What's wrong is wrong because it's inconsistent with the principles and the truths of this book, whether it seems to work or not. Oh, you see, I know this church and they brought in rock and roll music and they had smoke and lights and they danced around. They got a really big crowd. Well, I got a question. Why don't you see how their kids turn out? I read a survey said the contemporary church, this was in uh, a book published by Striving Together, loses 96% of their young people. We don't keep all of ours, but bless God, we keep a whole lot more than 4%. Wisdom is not justified of her attendance. Wisdom is not justified of her popularity with contemporary society. Wisdom is justified of her children, the Bible says. David's despair. Then you see David's deception. He tells Achish that he's killing the Jews, his own people. And he really isn't. He's killing some common enemies of the Philistines and the Jews. But David doesn't just go and wage honorable warfare. You know what he does? He kills all the men and he kills all the women. Women weren't soldiers in Bible times. Women weren't subject to warfare in Bible times. Women were not an appropriate uh, target of the enemy in Bible times. Innocent civilians. You know why I did that? Lest they should tell on us. And that works too. Achish believes him. Achish believed David, verse 12 of chapter 27, seeing if made his people utterly, Israel utterly to abhor him, therefore it should be my servant forever. 
But then when you get into chapter 28 and 29, David has a dilemma. Because now the Philistines are going to gather together a whole bunch of them, and a confederation of Philistines, and they're going to go fight the nation of Israel. And Achish says, oh, David, you've been killing all these Israelis. You're going to come kill a bunch of them with me now. Man, you're going to come. You'll be right with me. You'll be beside me. You've been fighting the south of Judah and the Jeremiahites and the Kenites. Well, we're going to go get them now. Come on, David. We'll kill some together. And David says, yeah. Oops. Do you know... God is way more merciful than we understand. <laughs> Don't presume on his mercy. There is judgment with God that we should be cautious of, but there's mercy that he might be feared, the Bible says. And you know what God does? God lets some of the Philistines say, wait a minute, we're not going with David. Don't you remember that song they sang about him? Uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That's us they were talking about. Remember Goliath was one of ours. Remember that battle we lost and so embarrassed because a shepherd boy came out and threw a stone from a sling and killed our champion and all of us wound running away and fleeing. That, that was David. We're not going to fight with him. And David gets to act wounded and act like he's been wronged. But he doesn't have to go fight. He's been given a little city named Ziklag. We read about that in chapter 27. And he comes back to Ziklag. And he has a disaster. It came to pass, chapter 30, verse 1. When David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great nor small, but carried them away and went on their way. And David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken away captives. And David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Lost his possessions, lost his people about to lose his position. The Bible says in verse six, and David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. Now wait a minute. Something's about to change. There's a decision David's going to make in just a moment that is going to be different than the decision he made earlier. He's about to go to a different source in order to decide what to do. He's about to stop listening to his own heart and following the counsel of his own mind and his own desires. The Bible says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He didn't do that in chapter 27. He said in his heart, I'm going to perish one day at the hand of Saul. But now that he's lost everything, his wives are gone, his children are gone. The people are so grieved that they think maybe they ought to stone David. This motley group of people, everybody that was in debt and in distress and discontented following David, started with 400, grown to 600. And now that little bunch that is with him, fleeing from Saul's 3,000 men, given a little respite in a place called Ziklag. And now everything they had has been taken away from they say that's it we wouldn't be in this mess if we weren't following David we ought to just kill him look what David does 
verse 8, verse 7, David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, bring hither, I pray, the ephod. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired, say the next three words if you got it, at the Lord. Not in his heart, at the Lord. Saying, shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them without fail. Read me the next two words. Recover what? All. All. David turns to God. He asks God's counsel. He trusts in God's answer. He decides to depend on God's power. He decides to go God's direction. And God says, David, I want you to go after him because you will without fail recover all. Every once in a while somebody says, well, you couldn't get right with God after you sinned, but you'll never be as good a Christian as you used to be. You'll never be as strong as you were before. You'll always suffer the consequences of what you've done wrong. Don't misunderstand me. There are sins I could commit that would bar me from being a preacher that would keep me from serving as the pastor of a church. There are things I could do that would rob me of a certain opportunity in the service of God. But I want you to understand something. Our God is not in the business of holding over our heads the sins of our past. Our God likes to wash them away in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He likes to hide them behind his back. He likes to bury them under the deepest sea. He promises he'll remember them no more. My Bible says, brethren of a man, be overtaken in a fault. Ye which your spirit to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou likewise be tempted. They tell me that word restore is the word that's used of a boat that has a hole in it. It's no longer seaworthy. When you restore the boat, you don't make it so it leaks half as much. You don't make it so it leaks a third as much. You make it so it's ready to go back in the water again. You put it back. The word means in its position of original usefulness. And I want you to understand that there are sometimes, though you have messed up, there are sometimes, though your life is broken or sometimes though you've made terrible decisions or sometimes though you've allied yourself with the enemies of God and his people that are wonderful, merciful, marvelous, gracious. God says, hey, go back because you can recover all. So we look at David's deliverance. It's pretty interesting. I want you to notice the elements of his deliverance. David, verse 9, chapter 30. When he and the 600 men that were with him came to the brick beast where they were that left behind stayed, where those that were left behind stayed, David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 were behind, which were so faint they could not go over the brook beast And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he did eat and they made him drink water. Verse 12, they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. When he'd eaten, his spirits came again to him. For he'd eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou? Whence art thou? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. My master left me three days agone. I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast which belonged to Judah and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said unto him, 
canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, swear unto me by thy God that thou will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I'll bring thee down to this company. Here's an Egyptian. Egypt's always an example in the Bible of the world. Like the ravens, the unclean birds that fed Elijah by the brook, brook Cherith, they are reminded that God uses the wrath of men to praise him. And here is this Egyptian, but he says, I know where they are and I know what happened. And David said, can you take me down there? And he said, promise me two things. Promise me you won't kill me. And promise me you will not turn me back over to my old master. You understand in the Bible, David is often an example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know I was a wretched sinner until Jesus came? And you know what Jesus said? He said, I won't kill you. I'll give you everlasting life. And I'll never put you back into the hands of your old master. Amen. Notice. The elements of his deliverance include a, an Egyptian, a Philistine, but notice the extent of his deliverance. You without fail recover all. You see, there's a little phrase in verse 8. There's a little glimmer of good news in the midst of the bad news. Their wives are gone. Their children are gone. Their animals are gone. Their city is burned with fire. But the Bible says in verse 8, uh, excuse me, earlier it says that they took them and they slew not any. Ah. Verse 2 says that they slew not any. And God said, all right, I'll tell you what, I know where they are and I know where you need to go to get them and I'm going to send you somebody to give you directions and, and I have kept all of them alive. You lost them, but not permanently. You lost them, but they can be restored. You lost them, but you can this time recover all. Give you a few thoughts and I'll be done. I used to say when I preached sermons that ended this early, Everybody promise you'll never tell the members of First Baptist Church of Bridgeport that I can preach this short. <laughs> I don't have to worry about that anymore. But the thoughts may take more than a moment. Number one, you've heard this often. It fits this story so well. Don't ever doubt in the darkness what you trusted in the light. God calls you to the mission field. You raise the money, you're all excited. It takes a while, but you get over there and everything's strange. Even though you took a survey trip and you studied the culture and maybe even tried to learn some of the language, the smells are different and the sights are different and the sounds are different and the language is different and the food is different and, and nobody seems interested and you do your best, but nobody comes. You begin to wonder, was I really called to this place at all? Don't doubt it then. God's promise, number two, beats your worry every time. Amen. Well, I'm just afraid. Well, what time I'm afraid I'll trust in thee. <laughs> in fact, I'll give you a better one. The psalmist said, I will trust and never be afraid. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said to his son in the faith, Timothy, or of me, his prisoner. You don't have to listen to your heart. You don't have to focus on your worries. You don't have to feast on your insecurities. You can trust God's promises. 
And uh, I would learn this. When you try to do it on your own, you always make a mess. <laughs> Somebody asked a question at a meeting in North Dakota. I was at recently about starting ministries. How do you know when to start a ministry? And I said, well, just be sure God's in it. I've started some that didn't do very well. It was a great idea. Everything was in place. We did it all exactly the right way and it flopped because it wasn't God's idea. It was my idea. Don't just do it because you want to do it. I think if I hook up with the Philistines, I'll end up all right. You will for a little while, David. We're going to have a much bigger mess later on. You're going to come to a point your wives and children and all of your possessions are gone. Because you see, here's the next lesson. One bad decision always leads to another. Little step out of the will of God. Little diversion from the path of righteousness. A little variation in what God has said. And to cover that's another and another and another. You know the old poem? I think it goes something like this. Small was the thing I bought. Small was the price at, uh, at best. Small was the cost, I thought. But oh, God, the interest. This is the price I paid just for one riotous day. Years of disgrace and grief. Sorrow I will, my friend, sorrow until the end, until the grave will bring relief. You know, when I was about 15, I took book work for driver education in Detroit, Michigan. Before I ever took road work, we moved to South Carolina where they did not have driver education. You just got your license when you were 16 and drove. And uh, in the book work, they were teaching us about, you don't want to crank the wheel real hard. You don't want to jam on the accelerator. You don't want to slam on the brake. And they showed a film of a guy driving a car and it had a device on there that every time he made some kind of movement, it would click. And a bad driver going almost in the ditch and coming back going click, 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 jumping on the accelerator, click, 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 on the brake, click, click, click. And then they showed a good driver. And he'd get a little off track and come back and he slowed down gradually and speed up gradually, but it still clicked. It went click, 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 click. Because nobody can steer a perfectly straight course. The difference between good drivers and bad drivers is good drivers make small and rapid corrections. Bad drivers keep drifting the wrong way till they're almost in the ditch. No Christian can steer a perfectly straight course. Forgive us our trespasses daily. Ah, we need daily bread. We need daily forgiveness. The old phrase says, keep short accounts with God. The difference between good Christians and bad Christians is good Christians go and go and go and go and either almost make a mess or make a mess and then come back. <laughs> Do you know who you see at the altar most often? Not the worst Christians. The ones who are most sensitive to the Spirit of God and listen, and he says, you've been off track just a little bit. You've had a wrong attitude. You've had a bad spirit. You neglected this part of your Christian life. One bad decision always leads to another. I like this. If you missed the whole sermon, I think you'd be well served to get this truth. God's grace is greater than our stupidity. I like it. I love the story of the Gibeonites. <clears throat> they come down and pretend they're a group of people from a long way away. <clears throat> they're really quite close to them, but they dress up in old clothes and bring moldy bread. 
And the Bible says Joshua, knowing that he can't make a, con- a covenant, uh, an agreement with the people that are close by, listens to them when they say they're from far away. And the Bible says he asked not counsel from the Lord. And not long after that, they find out the Gibeonites, they make the deal with them. The Gibeonites are from close by. And here comes a confederation, I think of five kings fighting the Gibeonites. And they come to Israel, help! Oh, brother. Now we got a battle we never should have had. So you know what happens? They go and they ask God to help them and God helps them. They were disobedient. They were stupid. They should never have done what they did. But God helps stupid people anyway. I like that. I qualify. I do a lot of stupid things. God's grace is greater than my stupidity and yours. And then this lesson, the beginning of your deliverance is when you turn to God. We like to finagle. We like to scheme. We like to connive. We like to take things into our own hands. I've never told this story in this sermon before, and I think I've told the story here, but it's been a while. I was a kid in Detroit. My dad ran the Detroit Rescue Mission. They had real tiny yards, but across the street was a big field owned by the railroad, and we would, we would play baseball there and ride our bikes there, and, and uh, we would flood an area uh, in the winter and let it freeze and play hockey on it like you do here a lot. <laughs> but our favorite thing to do is build tree forts, and one day I was going to build a tree fort with my friend Glenn. I had one hammer that was mine, belonged to me. He didn't have a hammer. I said, Dad, can I borrow your hammer? Glenn and I want to build a tree fort. He said, yes, son, but bring my hammer back. I said, yes, sir. We started to build the fort, and after a while, we ran out of nails. We had affixed three boards to the trunk of the tree to be steps to the tree fort we intended to build. Each step had about 36 nails in it. That was usually as far as we got was putting some boards on the trunk of the tree. I said, I'll go get some more nails. And I went home down the basement, got some nails, came back. I said, Glenn, where's our hammers? And he said the most frightening words I'd ever heard in my life up till that point. Now, usually the most frightening words I heard were bend over. (laughs) But he said, Teddy Tokar took them. Oh, man. Teddy Tokar was the toughest kid in our school with 750 students. And I think I was in the sixth or seventh grade at this time. I said, well, we better go get him. Bring my hammer back. So went down Ardmore Street where we lived, a street called Intervale, turn right. Went to a street called Sandsbury, turn left. There's Teddy Tokar. Teddy, you took our hammers. I want them back. I didn't take your hammers. You did so, did not, did so. And I don't know how it happened, but that intelligent dialogue degenerated to the place that we were rolling around on the ground and Teddy Tokar was trying to bash my head into the ground, the asphalt of the street. I didn't enjoy that very much. And so I practiced my sixth or seventh grade understanding of the golden rule. And I tried to do unto Teddy Tokar as he was doing unto me. (laughs) And we fought for a long time. I don't know how long it was. It seemed like hours. And a big kid came by and he broke up the fight. My clothes are torn. I'm bruised. I'm dirty. I can barely breathe. (gasps) I'm walking home. Glenn says, I think you got the best of them. (gasps) Thanks. I walk in the house, my mother says, what in the world happened to you? I said, Teddy took our our hammers and I went to get him back and I got in a fight. My dad was home, he said, uh, and he looked at me with compassion, the man could only have for his firstborn. (laughs) 
He said, did you get the hammers? <laughs> I thought, oh man, I got it from Teddy Tokar and I'm going to get it from dad. I said, no, sir. And he said, well, let's go get them. So my father and I got in the car and we drove down Ardmore to Intervale and turned right, went to Stansbury, turned left, knocked on the door. I wasn't scared now. My dad's bigger than Teddy Tokar. Teddy Tokar's mom answered the door and she was bigger than my dad. <laughs> Ma'am, your son took our hammers. We like him back. Teddy, do you take the hammers? He's on the couch crying. Yes, I was beat up. I was torn in my clothes and bruised and, and breathing hard, but I wasn't crying. I did get the best of him. He said, no. She said, you want another whipping like the one I just gave you? That was the source of his tears. It had nothing to do with our earlier encounter. <laughs> and he said, they're in the trash can. And we got the hammers and went home. Now, for a long, long time, I would tell that story as an illustration of the fact that I was scared to fight Teddy Tokar. I'd never fought him before. I never fought him again. He didn't look me up. I didn't look him up. We didn't say, hey, we never finished that. Let's decide who's the winner. We seemed both content to leave it at a tie. I know I was. But it dawned on me maybe 10 years ago, I'm a slow learner. I didn't have to go fight Teddy Tokar. I could have gone to my father first. My dad would not have said to me, son, I won't help you. You're not dirty, your clothes are not torn, and you're breathing normally. I see no bruises on you. No, my dad would have helped me the first time. The beginning of your deliverance is when you turn to God. When you stop trying to fix it all yourself, oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And then the last thing I would say, you ought to ask God if you can recover all. There's a man in our church many years ago named Ulysses Garcia. Had a ponytail, wore a leather motorcycle vest, <clears throat> sat up in the balcony of our previous auditorium. And after a while, I quit coming, and I wasn't sure why. I found out later he wanted to serve the Lord, and he thought that you had to have a college degree to teach Sunday school in our church. We do not even have a literacy requirement. <laughs> We'd lose a third of our teachers. <clears throat> why do you think we have YouTube, you know? Just one. So... He went to another church, and he was, he was really trying to be helpful. And the best I can tell, the pastor was envious that some of the people loved and appreciated Brother Ulysses. And he came by his house one night with another man from the church, started to tell him the things he was upset with about. And Ulysses said, Preacher, I'm sorry. Just tell me what to do. I'll do whatever you say. And the pastor said, Oh, no. You'll never darken the doors of this church again. And he stopped. I heard he's out of church, so I started contacting him most every Saturday. He runs a little place in downtown Saginaw called the Discount Service Center. Repairs, lawnmowers, and just a real rough kind of place. He'll go around, pick up people's trash, and fix it and sell it. One day, after a long, long time, Ulysses came back, probably about a year and a half. I kept trying to get him to come. He got in our Sunday school class. He was doing great. He taught a bus class in the afternoon bringing a lot of people into church. Ulysses had already always had a desire to start a church in downtown Saginaw. 
And after a while, he said, Preacher, I think God wants me to start a church. I said, all right. Here's what occasioned it. A man came by his little shop down there, and he said, uh, look, we're closing down our church, going to sell the building. We're going to start meeting in a home. We're going a contemporary route. But he said, we'll sell the building for $2,000 down and $200 a month. There's only a few blocks from your shop. Maybe you could use it. Ulysses Garcia pulled $2,000 out of his pocket. This is not $2,000. This is representative of the $2,000 that was in Ulysses Garcia's pocket. And he handed him the 2,000 bucks and he signed the papers. He said, preacher, I think God wants to start the church. I said, go ahead. He'd already had the name, had the name fixed for a long time. He was kind of nervous somebody might have taken his name. And so he went down to the county and saw if he could use this name, do business as. And sure enough, nobody had taken the name the Christ First Fellowship Baptist Church. They fixed up that little old building. And they either had church or soul winning every day. I preached for him a couple of times. He'd show me the book they kept. All the money came in, all the people that got saved, all the attendances they had, all the things that they had done with the money. He's so excited. But here's the most intriguing part of the story to me. When he gave him that money and signed those papers and walked into that building, he was walking into the same building about which they had said to him, you will never darken the doors of this church again. <laughs> He can't kick him out now. He owns it. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you can recover all. Lord, 